Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, is back on the program, sharing her insights and thoughts on what factors are driving the markets and what economic indicators she's keeping an eye on. Denise discusses inflation with host Pamela Ritchie and explains how inflation is still an important topic this year. Denise adds that investors need to be open-minded and that maybe all bad news about inflation is more likely in the rear view for the markets rather than staring us in the face. So how do investors position themselves this year and what sectors are appealing? Denise explains that for her, as much as we think markets are macro-driven, she finds relative valuation a much more important predictor of what works within equities and actually equities overall relative to bonds. She adds parts of the market are deeply overvalued like software and tech, but as an investor, you aggregate those things together with areas of the market that are deeply discounted. She believes the top three sectors are materials and consumer discretionary, financials and industrials, and the bottom three are consumer staples and utilities, real estate and tech. This podcast was recorded on January 17, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Denise. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Pamela? Very well. I'm very well. It's great to see you. So this is this is the question. I mean, is inflation, okay, it is the biggest topic, but is it still the biggest topic, actually? Yeah, in some ways, it's been a continuation. I mean, you highlighted the continuation of trend, which I think surprises investors sometimes when they look at the year-on-year rate. They say, well, it hasn't really declined yet, so it's just starting to decline. So a lot of the leading indicators were showing this is just a continuation of that pattern we really saw in 2022. So in some ways, looking back, 2022 was really a tale of two halves, an annualized inflation rate in the first half of, let's call it 10 to 15 percent, wildly higher than the year-on-year growth rate, uh, and then a quick moderation in the second half to now we're around, depending on how you look at it and depending on how you measure it, let's call it between two and a half and four. That's our run rate going forward. So when you think about the, the problem that inflation can present to either the Fed or the markets, this is really a continued deceleration that we started to see around June that's coming true as we approach 2023. This is very, very different from those investors that want to compare it to the 70s and 80s. If you take out shelter, which even the Federal Reserve acknowledged is sort of a backward-looking indicator and ultimately will true up to the rental deflation that we're actually seeing in the market, all of those CPI equivalents, so everything ex-shelter, even if you look at core services Chairman Powell is specifically concerned about might be correlated to wage growth. All of those are bumping around an annualized run rate of zero. So I think as we approach 2023, we have to be open-minded as investors that maybe all that bad news about inflation 
is more likely in the rearview mirror for the markets than staring us in the face. So coming back to how the Fed is either sort of pointing things out or I don't know if admitting is the right word, but just coming back to that, I mean, you've said before that there are things, goalposts are being moved. Uh, where do you yes. see that? Is, is that the wages story? Yes. Well, they certainly shifted it to ways, but it's really about, uh, you know, you know, core services, X shelter. Actually, it was just originally core services, which included shelter. And then they had to acknowledge the fact that, well, shelter is kind of backward looking. Even the Fed research did a, did a study on that saying, ultimately, we could probably true it up to real rental equivalents in the market. And that would lead to markedly lower inflation right now. And then the goalpost has moved to, well, it's core services, X shelter, right? Because that ultimately, if wage growth is sticky, then that will ultimately be sticky. But look, I mean, I think that you have to stay, stay skeptical on the fact that wage growth has decelerated quite a bit. And that core services X shelter component has also decelerated quite a bit, even more so than wages. So if you think that wage growth is actually going to cause a bottleneck in that core services inflation, so far we're not really seeing it. And this is so true that ultimately the CPI in December came in below Federal Reserve forecast for the full year of 2022. Will they acknowledge it? I don't know. But you can still see those those goalposts sort of move until they can't move anymore. So then a cut? Or what, how, how does that sort of narrative fit in these days, the pivot? Yeah, it's an interesting narrative, because I think that, the, again, like the bearish evolves as well. Now, obviously, I've been sort of on the bullish side and specifically since last June. And I think that that's where all of my signals became really interesting. And I think that they're still interesting in 2022. But I think the bearish argument has moved, well, okay, maybe inflation is slow, but then maybe the Fed could cut, but the Fed's saying it's not going to cut. And the market expects a cut, right? We can pull out the yield curve and we can say everything converted. And so if the market doesn't get the cut that it expects, this is going to be a problem. If you look back in history, and that's just not really the case, it's true that inversion of the curve or expectation of Fed funds cuts does tend to be more often than not true. I think it's about a 60-40 kind of hit rate. But when you look and say, well, what if you were wrong and there was no cut and it was higher, not lower in a year, the market actually has higher odds. Advance. So at any inversion, it's about 50-50 odds, right? An inversion is not as nearly as negative for the market as you think. And incremental returns, you know, average returns of let's call it two to five, depending on if you're looking at total return. But when you say, okay, you're wrong, there is no cut, there's actually not a hike, but interest rates actually go up, you have higher odds of a market advance. And into the 70s since 1981 and double digit returns. And you can even look and say, well, what if there's a cut, but it's not as much of a cut as the market expects? Mm, those odds are 100% odds and double wow. digit returns, meaning that it works the opposite way that investors think. That expectation of cut is really the expectation of recession. And as that recession call potentially fades, that's the bullish impetus for the market. That's amazing. So they would cut only because things are too tight going into a recession. So if they don't cut, it's because things are okay. That's right. This is very interesting. Okay. So let's take the overall investment thesis sort of across the universe a little bit here. So this, this is the case. We've got new inflation numbers out of Canada today. And as you say, the U.S. is sort of the case that you've just made there. How do people invest at this point? What's looking good? Where are the sectors to go to? 
Yeah, when you think about what the driving factors from an investment perspective are, it's usually not the news staring at you in the face, right? That tends to be more rear view looking. But what's really fascinating, at least to me, is as much as we think about these markets as macro-driven markets, it's all about the Fed, it's all about inflation. And look, I get a lot of investors who say that to me literally every day. I actually find relative valuation a much more important predictor of what works within equities and actually equities overall relative to bonds. So it might actually surprise you that even after a down year in equity markets, that does boost your odds, right? So usually after a down year in equities, you get some sort of snapback, but it's not related to what you might think it might be related to, which is how good earnings growth is. Right. Ultimately, you go, OK, we're down a lot, but you know maybe it's priced in some bad news, but not all the bad news. And if earnings are really bad, then that's going to mean that stocks are still bad. And <laughs> actually, it doesn't work that way. What is more predictive is that relative valuation starting point. And it's not just the absolute valuation of stocks. It's the absolute valuation of stocks relative to bonds. And when you look at a three and a half percent tenure, which is where we are right now in the U.S., right relative to 17 times forward, you, you're not like at cheap valuations, but you're at advantageous levels in history. Yes, we're a lot more expensive than we were over the last 10 years after the financial crisis when debt deleveraging was the real issue. But relative to the rest of history where debt deflation is not an issue, we're still in relatively strong valuation levels. And that creates the positive risk reward for equities in the coming years. That starting point on valuation. Yes, there are still some parts of the market that are deeply overvalued, right? We can point to software, we can point to some aspect of technology, the non-earners, but you have to realize is that as an investor, you're aggregating that together with stuff or areas of the market that are deeply discounted, right? Home builders actually trading at five times forward earnings. So what that means is overall, the equity market doesn't look so bad, but in the equity market, what actually looks to have the advantage is very, very economically sensitive sectors and not defensive sectors. Like I'm going to pick on consumer staples, utilities, and to a lesser extent, healthcare. And that is true regardless of the fact that we may approach a recession this year. Really? So that may not be the thing that sways it one way or the other, which is, of course, the reason that people would run for a more defensive portfolio at that point, certainly on the equity side. Right. It seems obvious, right? Okay, if 2023 is finally going to be the year after recession, after all those lagged, all the rate hikes that we've seen, this is the year going to be of contraction. I'm actually a little bit skeptical. I think it's harder to get into recession than that. But let's just give that thesis its due and say, okay. And there's certainly, and I'm actually doing a presentation on this tomorrow, so let me just sort of talk through it, because I'm kind of excited about it, because it's interesting when you look at the odds. People say, well, if you knew that a recession is going to happen, we've got eight historically going back to 1960, analyze and say, okay, consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare actually as an aggregate group do okay even after the recession starts. And yes, that's true. When you look at historically recessions at that start, if you knew when they started, the year following, you have like 63% odds for consumer staples, 50-50-ish for utilities, which is better than its baseline, and a little bit over like 58%, I think, for healthcare. So you say, okay, well, that's still positive for, for defense, Denise. What do you mean? You shift that by six months and take that point of start from the time the NBER told you that you're in recession, all that is gone. You're back to 50-50. So what has mattered more than those moving goalposts of recession, right? If you know that that can move just by a month 
and that your timing has to be impeccable to get that defense right. What can move that needle more? I don't want to make that bet. I don't know when it's going to happen. What, what turns out, what's more, what has more implications for forward performance is how much the stocks have already outperformed. And in our case, it on average defense outperformed, let's call it 9 to 10% the year prior to a recession. We're well into 20s, like 20 to 25, if you're tillies. And our starting point on relative valuation is about 15 to 30% more expensive. Those two things have mattered more than recessions when you look at the gap in the odds of outperformance. So that's a fancy sort of statistical way to say it is different this time in the sense that there's so much variability around those recessions. As an investor, you would rather use things you know like what have we already seen in terms of relative performance and what's my starting point in relative valuation than some sort of guesswork on when this NBER defined recession is going to come. Okay. We love it when you practice your presentations for tomorrow on us. That is fabulous. I can't tell you. Um, also, and this goes right to the relative valuation. Okay. Look at EM, look at Europe. I mean, Europe's kind of on fire right now, actually. Um, yes. Is this the same story? Yes. So I will say that, so it's a good thing when you part, when you see the laggard areas of the overall market have an impulsive advance, right? That's Europe and to a lesser extent EM. So you have seen over the last three months an outperformance there and significant outperformance, you know, but if you held it for the last you know, five years, you would call that you're still significantly in the hole. But so I think that's likely to continue given that this is all around the dollar essentially. So I think there is a continued trend of dollar depreciation as the Fed doesn't have as much of an inflation problem as many investors think. So I think that that's likely to to maintain that going forward. What's been interesting to look at is that sector valuation or that sector rotation within Europe specifically has been solidly consumer discretionary and financials. And those are two of my preferred sectors within the U.S. So I think you see not only a strong impulsive advance in areas of the market that have lagged global equities, but you've seen a very strong impulsive rotation into cyclicality. And I do think you've seen it more in Europe, and I think to a little bit of a lesser extent, but similar in emerging markets, I think that that's still to come in the U.S. So I think that that pattern is likely a global pattern. Now, to the extent that you think that you want to go outside the U.S. to potentially get more alpha, I see Europe at not quite valuation thresholds that make me comfortable as an investor in the sense that what you've often seen happen is a value trap. So valuation, yes, the valuation spreads are wide. Yes, the gap is extreme, but it hasn't historically led to consistent odds about performance. This is Europe versus the U.S. You're closer on EM, which feels a lot hairier than Europe from a you know investment thesis story, but EM has actually had much more solid valuation support to bet on. So if you were going to think of I want to go outside the you know the US, where has the strongest statistical valuation support, I would point to emerging markets. But that said, I'm not necessarily sure you have to go outside the U.S. to get that strong valuation support, but you do have to go down in market cap. 
I think U.S. mid-caps are really the sweet spot there. We're bottom decile relative price to book versus the bigs, relative trailing and forward P.E. versus the bigs. We're not quite there on free cash flow, but we're close. That valuation support has showed strong odds, regardless of the fact that fundamentals in the mid-cap space haven't really been as good as in the large-cap space, which means that the stocks are willing to look through it. So when you port out all the average returns and you, you say, okay, at these levels, what is the overall market tend to do on average, you get like double digit returns and mids tend to lead by about 10 to 15%. So you're talking about a 35% opportunity. It's not to say it's a lock, but your average returns from the dislocation signals that we're seeing create a unique opportunity within the US that you don't necessarily have to go outside. So interesting. Coming back to the financials, you know, sort of just to expand on that risk regarding provisions for credit losses, uh, if there is, in fact, a recession. We also have big U.S. banks reporting right now. There's some very different reactions to some of to some of those earnings. Are there other factors that you're bullish on within within financials is the question, really? Yeah, I think we're starting to see idiosyncratic performance around financials, which is probably a good thing relative to some sort of call around inflation or the Fed or what's credit going to do, because generally speaking, all of that news has been fairly well contained. So I, look, I know that you know every time that the you know, financials is the beginning of the earnings season and we hear a bunch of banks sort of you know, uh, hypothesize on what the year will bring in terms of, yes, we're banking credit losses because we think the U.S. consumer is going to be Know, potentially more strained, but yet numbers actually come up over the course of those. I think that it's, we can see this in the forward looking credit markets. And one of the real canaries in the mind all year has really been credit spreads. And I should say all year, all, all the last six months has been really dominant in terms of the uptrend in credit spreads up until last, you know, fall. And then since fall, the severe downtrend in credit spreads. And what you're seeing is that there is a more muted outlook in terms of the coming potential of defaults. And I think that that's no surprise, given the fact that consumers have really been faced with negative real income growth in the course of the last 18 months. You're starting to see that accelerate. As inflation comes down, real income growth is actually advancing, causing that you know, potential you know, credit event to be less likely from an incremental perspective. So that's sort of a long-winded way of saying, you know, I think we're starting to see some idiosyncratic movement around stocks, but the broader picture in terms of credit doesn't seem to be as bad as investors expect. And every earnings cycle, we see that as much as it doesn't sound great, numbers actually come up after. And I think that you have strong valuation support. Again, that when you go back in history and you say, okay, given the valuation levels that we're at, which are well below you know, what we saw in even the financial crisis in 2008, and that's on book and earnings, so both. What you're seeing is a really solid risk reward environment, unless you think that the recession is very severe. And by very severe, I mean an unemployment rate over the course of the next year ahead of 7.5%. So that's certainly not my base case. If that's your base case as an investor, then I would say not the sector for you. But I think your risk reward outside of that scenario is pretty solid, given the valuation levels that I look at. Fascinating. Okay, let's go to commodities. Let's talk about oil and and maybe across the spectrum. I mean, there have been some fascinating headlines around the oil story. That's the commodity itself, not necessarily the equities. But how do you look at that? 
Yes, I think the commodity doesn't look nearly as bad as the equities are starting to look to me. But I think that the bull case on commodities in general is trying to reopen it. Um, you can make that into a bearish argument or a bullish argument, right? So it's it's sort of fun to do, and then I'll tell you the facts, right? The, the bearish argument is, well, a China reopening is going to cause inflation in global markets, and that means the Fed's going to do more that's bearish in the markets, right? Or you can say the bullish argument, which is China's going to reopen, that's going to be good for commodities, that's going to be good for growth, and that's going to be bullish for the market, right? So it's funny, you can go in either direction. What I would say is that there are areas in the market where that reopening is priced in, and there are areas in the market where it's not. So I would say the area in the market where that's already been priced in is crude oil and specifically in the energy stocks themselves. So I look at the OECD forecast and, you know, essentially that's, you know, an expectation of an increase in demand uh, from China specifically that we've all sort of been waiting for. And I think that that's what investors have been waiting and playing for. But when I look in the oil markets, what has been more important than the change in demand is supply and excess capacity. Right. So, look, China might not make up for the lack of demand, by the way, in Europe and the U.S. And whether or not that's weather related, we never really had a strong recovery. So it's not just about China. You can't hold all else equal. Demand hasn't recovered very strongly. You know, by the way, we still do have excess capacity because OPEC cut a lot, which means that commodity markets know that, well, if you cut a lot, if crude oil actually goes up, some of those barrels are going to make their way back onto the market. You don't see this at all in the metals and mining space. There's less excess capacity as an issue, right? You don't have an OPEC in commodities. There's less of an impetus for, you know, the China recovery to have been priced in. And I think that you've got a really long track record for specifically metals and mining. I'll add copper and gold here because now they look very similar to me. Do they usually look similar? Sorry to interrupt, but do they usually look similar? I mean, a lot of people just separate gold out, as you know. So I think that gold always looks more like commodities than anything else to me, right? When I look through history, so whether people say it's a currency or it's, you know, it's an interest rate play, I say it's a commodity, right? And there's reasons behind that. And sometimes I lump it in with crude, which I really shouldn't do because I would lump it in with metals and mining more than crude. Now, sometimes they're all together. Right now, I think that they're dramatically separate, right? Crude is acting and energy stocks are acting very, very differently. It doesn't always happen, but this is the point at which you only get 30% odds for crude oil energy stocks and you get, you know, 60 to 70% odds in mills and mining and um, gold specifically. And if you had to pick a commodity that gold would be related to, it would be related to copper. So there you have, again, that really strong valuation support. But unlike energy, you actually have a really strong historical likelihood of looking through what might be a pretty bad year in terms of earnings and margins, right? Metals and mining along with energy stocks are at peak margins, right? Everybody sort of knows this. From a risk-reward perspective, what does that mean? That means your odds have a base case of earnings contracting over the course of the next year. So where can you get value, right? Value impacts your odds about performance, but where can you get value impacting your odds about performance, even if fundamentals slip? That's not at all in energy, but it is in metals and mining. So I think that if there is a way to play that China reopening trade on the positive side, I see it more likely in the metals and mining space. So within what you've just said there, it makes me think sort of, the story of inflation comes back because if you do have China demand, which again, nobody seems to really know what that's going to mean, um, you would assume that inflation comes along with that. Not really. You know, it's funny. I mean, inflation doesn't have a lot of relation to growth. And I'll say this sort of tongue in cheek, 
I don't really think that just a recovery actually causes inflation and certainly not an inflationary shock, which is where we're coming from. So I think if you like, we could, you know, port it out into like at least four baskets that, you know, cause, let's you know, cause inflation. One is supply change, which clearly did, right? That was a clear impact. You can measure it in supplier delivery times in the ISM. If you want to go to that website, you know, chart and you'll see that that's come off a lot. Clearly, and two or government stimulus, right? So you can see that on an annualized run rate, you know, money supply was growing at 20%, which had never happened historically. Now it's negative, which has also never happened historically. So that's sort of unwound. And then you're left with like the unemployment rate and growth rates. And I look at them and they just don't relate, right? So we had low unemployment rates right before we, we entered the pandemic. We didn't have inflation then, right? So there's a lot of things that we don't know in terms how, you know, and even when the you know, chairman of the Federal Reserve talks about, you know, what causes inflation, I get the theory, but when you look in reality, the numbers really don't support it. So a low unemployment rate doesn't magically create inflation. It's more excess supply than you think, and there's more, you know, demand being being mismeasured than you think within that one number. So I actually think that China could recover and inflation could still decelerate, and that would not surprise me at all. What about if we go to factors for a second here, the the value of low vol, I mean, it, it still looks choppy. There's still lots of questions about what kind of volatility is ahead. I mean, we're in the midst of it. You just look at the markets today. Which yeah, it's funny. I was actually talking to my boss and he was like, well, you know, there's a lot of academic research on low vol. And he's absolutely right. I mean, there's a ton of academic research on low vol. If you just sort of basket it up and buy the lowest volatility stocks, right? Stocks going to move a lot over time, right? They go down less than down markets. And they actually go up at a fairly good rate when markets actually go up. So your risk reward and your sharp ratio and are really look off the charts. And I think that that's largely been true over the last all 20 years. But what's happened as that has been mined and exploited, I would say you've left low vol stocks in expensive. That's sort of why consumer staples is where it is. Investors actually know that they don't move a lot. They use them to be protected and they're bidding them up you know, gapping out that wide valuation. So low ball looks less egregious than, say, utilities that I just quoted. But if you quartile it out going back to the 1990s, you'll say that, you know, low ball is on earnings and book. I think it's in its top decile and almost in its top quartile on free cash flow, free cash flow and book, and it's in its top decile on forward earnings and trailing earnings. Right. So you aggregate that all together and you say, well, does it matter when it's expensive? And historically it has. You've led to, you know, below 50-50 odds and the low ball is good leadership, uh, especially churning up market. So to me, the, the risk reward of, again, that defensive sectors or defensive equities overall from a factor perspective in low ball all sort of starts to the same thesis, which is relative valuation is often more important than whatever news flow comes your way. And the starting point of relative valuation does not look to be advantageous. That is fascinating. Okay, so can you sum up for us the top, and this maybe also you could overlay whether this is sort of a global discussion for you, but top three sectors and then actually bottom three sectors. You've mentioned them, but just sum them up for us. Yes. So top three are, let's see if I can do order. No, I always go back and forth. I'm going to put materials and consumer discretionary together. I want to pick one and two and then financials right after it. And then I would say industrials. On the bottom half, I always sort of go back and forth as well. I'm going to say consumer staples, utilities, real estate in there because it looks like defensive and looks like a high valuation to me. I think tech is sort of somewhere in the middle. It doesn't look like, you know, I think a positive risk reward because your starting point on relative valuation isn't really that good. But if you wanted to go down the cap spectrum, 
I wouldn't stop you. I think avoided technology is an, is an area of opportunity. Large cap, not so much. So that's within the sector market. And within sort of, I would say, the, the global market, for me, I think that the one defining asset class would be U.S. mid caps. If you felt like you wanted to you know, play a global trade, I would say look at metals and mining. I think that's a good sector and basket of stocks that could give you that potential upside of that reopening play. And if you really wanted to take a flyer and go outside the U.S. with strong valuation support, that would actually be emerging market. Denise Chisholm, thank you so much for joining us, taking us through your thoughts at this point and uh, unmuddying the waters for us. All the best. Thank you so much, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.